spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Oliver Millman, on his book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Oliver Millman is a British journalist and the environment correspondent at The Guardian. He currently lives in New York City, and today we're going to talk about Oliver's book, which is The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Oliver, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, good to be with you, Neil. So the book starts off with a sort of speculative fiction idea of what could possibly happen if there was a um, a mass extinction of insects some of the sort of cascading issues that would that would happen to us human beings in particular so tell us something about that first of all yeah so when when I thought about writing a a book about insects which I never really thought I would do but when when, when I realized they were in such kind of deep trouble I thought about how best to convey that and I think the first kind of hurdle you need to get over for the kind of casual reader is why would I care why would I care that insects are declining so rapidly in in many parts of the world and I kind of wanted to kind of illustrate I suppose off the bat why it's important why the insect crisis is consequential for us uh, as humans why it's um, you know potentially devastating for the world and so I kind of wanted to kind of illustrate this kind of worst case scenario of what a world without insects would look like and it's um, yeah, it's quite a grim place it's certainly not a place we'd want to be in and it's not a place we'd survive in really for for longer than a few months, the kind of great biologist E.O. Wilson took a stab at that a few years ago, and he thought we'd maybe last kind of three or four months, I think, uh, before kind of mass starvation and other things uh, finished us off. So it's not a very kind of, it's, it's quite a bleak kind of scenario. One I don't think we'll kind of get to quite, but uh, I wanted to kind of highlight the importance of insects and hopefully hopefully that opening did the trick. And what sort of thing? What what are the sort of the worst case scenario things that could happen? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people will be kind of aware of how important insects are for pollination. You know, one in every three bites of food is the kind of famous ratio. And it depends on how you quantify it. But certainly, a, you know, a huge amount of uh, our nutritionally valuable foods come from insect pollination, fruits, vegetables, kind of the colourful things on your plate. So without that, you would get severe uh, malnutrition and starvation in many parts of the world. Um, you're already starting to see that in, in some places. There was a study that came out in January finding that uh, there's about half a million early deaths a year happening around the world due to uh, loss of pollinators because we're losing bees and um, beetles, butterflies, flies, the kind of things that um, pollinate our, our foods. It's half a million deaths a year already happening because of uh, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancers, um, that sort of thing, uh, because of that lack of nutrition. So obviously, a complete loss of insects would um, compound that massively, and we'd see, you know, huge global food insecurity. 
Um, we'd also to see a, a general deterioration in our and a collapse really in our ecosystems, um, waste disposal, the kind of cycling of nutrients through plants to propagate them. We would essentially have the kind of life support systems of our environment around us kind of crash down around our ears. It would be a, a particularly grim place and one we really wouldn't want to visit. And it's amazing how some of the things that we think of as like incredibly commonplace have such very specific pollinators and i'm thinking particularly here about chocolate tell us something about how we get chocolate yeah we don't really think about it do we but i mean the 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 world's entire supply of chocolate is dependent on this tiny little midge that is small enough to crawl into the uh the opening of the cacao plant to um pollinate it and so you know you have this kind of multi-billion pound uh, industry that's dependent on um on this tiny midge and nobody thinks about that when you're eating uh, your chocolate bar but that, I suppose, sums up, I think, what place insects have in our lives. They're kind of seemingly everywhere, but at the same time, nowhere. Um, they're kind of annoyingly around us at all times. But at the same time, we don't really think about them. We don't think about their importance. We don't think about what they do for us. We don't think about what they uh, do for the world. And so, um, yeah, I think chocolate is a really good example of that. Without flies, these tiny little flies, these midges, we'd have no chocolate. We'd have no kind of ice cream either or coffee or a lot of the other things that we really kind of cherish and make life kind of worthwhile. So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's really kind of sobering to think about it in that way. I think if people have heard anything about an insect crisis, they will probably have heard something about issues with bees. And um, we will come back to bees specifically a bit later on in the interview and, and look at them in some detail. But more in general for a while, when did we first, or when did scientists, I guess, when did entomologists first begin to notice that there was a crisis? Yeah, I mean, it's been talked about in entomological circles for a little while, but I think the kind of big kind of breakthrough in terms of kind of broader kind of public awareness of the problem probably came through around 2017. You had this kind of big study coming out of Germany and that was kind of widely publicised that found that uh, the annual average weight of flying insects caught in traps in nature reserves in Germany, across Germany, had fallen by 76% since 1989. So Germany had lost kind of three quarters of its uh, flying insects since the Berlin Wall came down, which is kind of incredible to think about. And these are in protected areas as well, not kind of in cities or, um, you know, agricultural areas. Um, In summer, it was even worse. I think it was about 82% decline. So quite astonishing level of uh, of loss and we started then to be introduced to terms like you know insectageddon insect apocalypse that kind of thing from the media because then there were kind of subsequent studies coming out from kind of rainforests of puerto rico there's been reports on declines of british butterflies uh, i spoke to to one guy who's been charting the loss of insects in denmark he found there's been a 97 percent decrease since the the 90s of of insects in um, in rural Denmark. I mean, we started getting these kind of glimpses in just a few years of these declines, and um, scientists have been trying to kind of get their heads around that since. About you know how widespread is that? How uniform is is it? What are the kind of causes? But certainly, pretty much every entomologist you speak to now, very very clear that you know this is a quite real and quite serious decline of insects that poses you know big problems for us. There's some real great characters that are quoted in the book. Just a, a quick shout out in particular for um, Erica McAllister of the uh, Natural History Museum, who I've uh, spoken to in the past. But the guy that you just mentioned in Denmark, 
you didn't mention how he went about studying the decline of insects in particular. Tell us about his experiment. It's great. Yeah. Well, he he kind of hit upon. Uh, so this guy's called and uh, Anders Pepe Moller, and he's a a Danish scientist. And his big thing is birds. He's really into his, his birds. And he noticed that there were just few and fewer birds around in the countryside in Denmark. And he just thought maybe that's because the insects aren't there anymore. Birds have nothing to eat. And so he decided to test this in quite an unusual way by basically getting his old 1960s beat up Ford Anglia car and driving up and down the same stretch of road in Denmark about nine times a day and counting the number of bugs that hit his windscreen. Uh, he's been doing that every summer since 1997, which is quite kind of dedication to a quite an unusual experiment. So he he was kind of putting kind of numbers. He was putting data onto this phenomenon called the windscreen effect or the windshield effect, if you're here in America, uh, which is basically this kind of understanding that some people might have of a certain age that when you were a kid, you when you were being driven across the countryside, you you would kind of end up with loads of bugs smeared on the on the windscreen because they've all been flying into them. And now that seems to happen less and less. It's just, you know, it's a less common occurrence. And um, Anders, yeah, he he turned this into a, you know, a scientific paper. <laughs> and he found that, uh, he found there was, yeah, 97% decline in insects hitting his windscreen since the, since the 90s, which is kind of incredible. He said a lot of days he'd just be driving around and there'd be nothing, nothing hitting the windscreen at all. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of one of the more unusual ways to document this kind of decline. The other side to the insect crisis is not just an idea that insects could have some sort of mass extinction, which will cause us problems, but also that the balance of different types of insects could change. So some good insects, and I'm using inverted commas here as well, but just for brevity, some insects that we consider good could decline rapidly while other types of insects that we don't necessarily like could vastly increase in numbers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, insects really, are, they're the great survivors. They've gonna, they survived five mass extinctions. They were here before the dinosaurs. They were here after the dinosaurs. And there's, you know, there's a million named species. There's, you know, maybe five million really that we don't know about, maybe 10 million, we're not sure. I mean, there's such a variety of insects that they're not all going to die out, certainly not before humans. So we're not going to lose all insects. And I tried to make that clear in the book that they're not on this like steep slope to zero where we have no insects around at all. But what we're doing is creating a world of kind of winners and losers. And the winners are those kinds of insects, generally speaking, that we don't want around so much. And the losers are the things we really cherish, the bumblebees, the butterflies, um, the beetles, the things that we the things that we kind of value kind of economically in terms of our food production. But also aesthetically as well, if you think about some of the most beautiful butterfly species, for example, in the world that are being kind of wiped out at the moment, things that kind of bring real joy when you go for a walk. So, yeah, we, we're kind of replacing those things that we really value with, um, with things that we value far less. I mean, if you take mosquitoes, for example, what do they like? They like kind of, generally speaking, they like warm, damp conditions. And that's entirely what we're doing through climate change. You know, the, the band, the area of the world that uh, can support disease carrying mosquitoes is growing towards the poles. And so it's, it's expected that a billion extra people around the world are going to be exposed to, you know, mosquito borne viruses um, spread by mosquitoes. Um, the same with um, 
the same with you know other creatures we don't want around like kind of bed bugs cockroaches things like that things that do well in kind of human dominated systems uh, with kind of waste around for them to eat uh, who are adapting well to human life i mean those are the kind of creatures that will do well and those that can't won't do well so it's a pretty bad trade-off that we're making at the moment and i'm glad you brought up mosquitoes because this is a great example of of something that it seems like an absolute no-brainer that it would be a good thing if there was less mosquitoes and indeed as you said because of you know climate change one of the things that is driving this insect crisis of course mosquitoes are, are going to affect even more people they already you know kill more people than any other animal so what are some of the reasons why it would not be because there has obviously been already without thinking about the concept of, a, of an insect crisis or climate change plans to try to eradicate mosquitoes by humans from various places what are some reasons then why that would not be a good idea yeah um there are lots of studies and kind of research efforts going on underway to try and get rid of them. Um, I think through the process of writing this book, I spoke to the kind of two or three people in the whole world who would be really devastated if mosquitoes were to be wiped out. <laughs> I spoke to one research scientist who's been working on genetically modifying them so that they so they die off for 20 odd years. And she said she just had this epiphany once looking under a, a microscope at how kind of beautiful they are. They're big kind of compound eyes and their colourful wings and she thought there may be a better way of doing this than just simply killing them all off. I mean, the, the arguments, uh, like you said, there are strong arguments why you want to get rid of mosquitoes. I mean, not all of them carry disease, only a few of them do. Um, so it's not like they're all kind of equally bad in that respect. Um, but, you know, lots of people do die from malaria and dengue and um, yellow fever and all these other things. So, you know, there, there is a kind of compelling reason beyond them just being irritating but the the downside is you'd be removing a kind of foundational plank from the from the food chain for for many creatures kind of amphibians birds that that kind of thing they wouldn't have mosquitoes or the larva to eat anymore Um, and once you do that you start getting into kind of unknown or unintended consequences you know where you start seeing certain species decline because their food source has been taken away we don't know it's kind of an experiment you could only really run once it was um once it was done unfortunately so yeah mosquitoes are obviously hated but it's not as simple as saying we should just flick a switch and get rid of them it's it's a little bit more complex than that they like everything else in the world play a role in the food chain in the world around us they aren't just here pointlessly to annoy us and kill us off they actually uh, they actually do things You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Oliver Millman and we're talking about his book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. And Oliver, we started talking a little bit before we broke about climate change. Let's talk about some other ways in which climate change in particular is driving the crisis in insects. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, climate change, I think, has only recently been thought by kind of scientists to be an issue for insects. I mean, we've been so focused on the, all the other impacts from the climate crisis, particularly on other kind of larger animals. You think about kind of polar bears drifting on bits of floating ice, for example. We don't really think about insects because they kind of seem to be, you know, small and quite portable and, you know, um, they should be able to adapt. But, um, you know, there's there's been some kind of recent research showing that insects do really badly and are doing really badly in this kind of warming world. And apparently, um, if, you know, if we get to kind of three degrees Celsius of warming, um, you know, half of all insect species will lose more than half of their current habitable range. So you're seeing shrinking of the area in which um, insects are able to to thrive. Bumblebees, uh, for example, are, are particularly badly suited for a kind of warming world. They're kind of sewn into their winter jackets at all times, aren't they? So if you think about bumblebees, but also butterflies, you're having these kind of big butterfly migrations uh, in the US and Mexico here that are um, under threat because of climate change. And we're scrambling the seasons. I think that's really another important thing that is affecting um, insects too. Spring is arriving earlier and earlier. Um, you're seeing that kind of documented in many places around the world now. You know, flowers are, are budding earlier in the in the year, and that kind of throws off the whole kind of chain of interactions you have between kind of flowers and insects and birds, and is kind of to the detriment of insects really that um, we've kind of messed up the seasons. So yeah, climate change is a big one, and it's one of the harder ones to to contend with, of course, because you can do some kind of localised conservation work or ban certain pesticides or, or whatever it is to help insects. But climate change is going to keep rolling on for many years to come, even if we get our act together on cutting emissions. So, um, yeah, it's, it's going to prove to be a, a, a pretty, serious, um, pretty serious issue for insects going forward. Well, pesticides is, is going to come up next as well, because let's talk about how changes to um, the sort of industrialization of farming, I guess, across the world. And the introduction of, you know, chemical pesticides and herbicides and things has made a difference as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, I mean, I think a lot of people when they think of farming still thinks of, you know, the kind of family farm with, um, you know, you know, an apple orchard and maybe like a field of crops and some pigs scattered around. But um, more and more, the world is moving towards this industrialized form of farming where you have just huge, enormous fields with kind of single monocultural crops in there, no variety there, no weeds at the the edges that insects like to live on and can survive on. So you're kind of clearing out whole areas of the countryside, anything that insects can feed on and live on, getting rid of hedgerows, getting rid of all this kind of stuff that um, insects need to survive. So it's creating this kind of, yeah, this kind of poisonous kind of moonscape, really, if you're an insect, you just continually spraying these chemicals to get rid of pests but they they unfortunately also get rid of the things we see as beneficial the butterflies and the beetles and the bees and all these um other insects so yeah pesticides is a, a real problem and the european union has kind of acted on that on some of the worst ones but still in many countries including uk us and others you you got these um quite harmful pesticides they're being applied uh, supposedly to help yields although that is questionable whether they actually help improve the crop what we know for certain is that they are pretty devastating for insects. So nicotinoids, which is one of the um, the modern pesticides, which plays a um, quite a significant part, we think, in the in the decline of bees, which is where we're going next, is one of the things that the European Union have just come down quite quite hard on. It remains to see whether or not we will 
we will stay in that direction as well here. Well, I say we, you're in the US, but myself still in the UK. To get us into talking about bees, there's an amazing passage in this book where you talk about something that I was not aware that happened at all, which is the the trade in pollination in the US in particular. So tell us something about if you're a farmer in the Central Valley of California who owns an almond farm, how do you go about pollinating your almonds? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of industrialization of farming is kind of zenith, really. If you go to this area of California, it's um, just it's almost like a factory floor of farming. So anything that is not productive for producing crop has been cleared out of the way and replaced by rows and rows of crops. Um, and almonds is is one of the biggest. They produce kind of 80, 90 percent of the world's almonds, I think, just from Central Valley of California. And because if you've got rid of everything around the farm other than the crop, there is no habitat for bees uh, or other pollinators, really, to pollinate your crop. So you've got a huge crop that needs to be pollinated, but no pollinators to, to do that. So what you have is each year this kind of enormous kind of pollination jamboree where kind of every managed uh, honeybee hive in America is strapped onto a lorry and driven to um, the Central Valley of uh, California. And these bees are kind of set down next to the fields and uh, released uh, in order to uh, pollinate the almonds. And then they then go on like a kind of tour, like a kind of band or something or some kind of contracted worker. You know, you might go and pollinate some blueberries or some citrus or, or something else in another part of the country. Because essentially all the wild bees uh, are in decline or have been wiped out or, or just simply not large enough in number anymore to do that pollination service. So, yeah, you've you essentially turned beekeeping from this kind of hobby into this kind of quite grueling year round uh, agricultural uh, contracting service. And the bees get kind of taken around on on lorries to do that, which stresses them out. It kills a lot of them. Uh, a lot of them have to kind of cope with kind of disease and kind of outbreaks within the hives and need to be treated. It's, it's a fairly kind of miserable life for bees. And, and what's worse, I kind of found out that there's a there's a kind of growing bee rustling um, trade going on in California, too, because the value of the pollination has become so high as the bees have become rarer. Um, there are thieves now who will go out and steal the hives off the back of back of lorries and sell them on because uh, the bees become so valuable. So you have bee detectives now in California trying to hunt down these people. So this was this trade in pollination became necessary because one of the reasons was because, as you said, the fields had been cleared. The wild population of bees and pollinators had gone. So it became necessary to industrialize it. But then suddenly, recently, that industry itself has been hit by a sudden collapse in, in bee numbers. So sum up for us, what has gone wrong with bees? Yeah, well, I mean, it depends what you're talking about, because I think a lot of people think about when they think about bees, they think about honeybees, right? You think about a kind of orange and black striped creature that um, buzzes around in a hive with lots of other bees and makes honey. And that is a honeybee. And honeybees are not native to all parts of the world, but they've been transported around the world because they're useful for agricultural production. So a lot of the time they outcompete the kind of native wild bees. If you think about bumblebees, solitary bees, like mason bees, for example, that kind of dig their holes in uh, nests in the ground or in wood or something like that. 
And so honeybees have become like the kind of avatar really for bee conservation. And, you know, they do face issues. They, like I say, they face kind of disease that's spread around the world between in this kind of trade of you know, pollination and hives moving them around spreads disease they're suffering from you know climate change and loss of habitat like every other kind of insect but they have humans to look after them so they you know they we can kind of keep their numbers up in some degree kind of wild bees bumblebees for example um they don't have that luxury they don't have humans really looking after them to the same degree so they're suffering from all these effects they're suffering from loss of habitat uh, they're suffering from climate change suffering from pesticides they're suffering from disease that are spread around they're suffering from being outcompeted by the honeybees they really are suffering a really tough time uh, we've made the world really hard for bees in in many respects and as much as we like to think we like bees there's lots of people who join save the bees kind of groups um, we need to be doing far more to um, to protect their numbers because from a selfish point of view they're probably one of the most important creatures in the world in terms of a human perspective there was a thing called colony collapse that happened relatively recently as i said where where a lot of sort of industrial bees farmed bees started mass numbers of them started dying off what do we know about that yeah this is where you would just get go to your hive and they will just be empty just empty the bees and uh you know for for a few years beekeepers were um absolutely bewildered why this was happening there was this kind of fear that went around the world you know, 10, 15 years ago that, um, you know, we'd just see the end of, of bees um, because of colony collapse disorder, um, where the, you know, the queen would leave or die off, the, or the bees would all leave or die. And this has been a problem, continues to be a problem, still in, not entirely clear why this has been happening, but it's most likely linked to some of those things I've been mentioning before, pesticide use, habitat loss that sort of thing has caused it. Um, there's less fear around at the moment that colony collapse disorder itself will cause a huge extinction of bees at a, a kind of a widespread scale. But certainly it's one of the one of the factors that uh, has caused people to be very worried about the future of bees. Obviously, when we think about what's, you know, what's being done about mitigating climate change, it's this huge problem that it's going to take a you know an entire world to to get together and and solve together. But it seems like there are things that again beyond solving climate change, beyond you know taking on the agribusiness, chemical multinationals, and what have you, there are things that everybody can do to to try to help insects on on a relatively small level. So what are some of the things that that would help? As kind of farmlands become so uniform now, so kind of monocultural, people's gardens are actually one of the most diverse areas left, really, of habitat for, for bees. And you, you're seeing that now, like when I was in London last time, I could I could notice how people's gardens are, are changing a bit in that, you know, people are becoming less fussy, I suppose, about, you know, having a very closely cut lawn and very nicely ordered flowers from around the world that look pretty and that kind of thing. And just letting things grow a bit, because that's what insects really love. They love you know, a bit of vegetation, uh, native plants. They like leaves to be kind of left as they fall rather than being raked up. Uh, they obviously don't like um, the lawn being cut close and, you know, chemicals thrown all over it. So if you can avoid doing that, if you do have a garden, then that's really useful. And it's nice to see that there's been a bit of a rethink from some people on that. So that's one thing you can do. You know, buying organic food has some merit to it, although obviously... I understand that's, you know, not always 
doable it's certainly not always affordable for a lot of people so i wouldn't say that's a kind of panacea but i mean getting involved i think is really important too there's lots of citizen science projects out there we can count butterflies and other things you can kind of lobby politicians to get them to do more on this you can obviously vote in appropriate ways on some of that kind of stuff and and all of that kind of fosters a better appreciation of love for insects because i think that's key ingredient in all of this is that we need to care about them before we save them and in that lovely sort of nature is healing way the pandemic accidentally caused a few things to happen which inadvertently helped insects yeah that's right we just kind of eased off a little bit didn't we we became a little less fussy so we started cutting the grass next to motorways a little less and we um, let things go a bit in cities so that plants could kind of rebound and we started seeing wildflowers everywhere again and um, that brought back the insects which then brought back other animals we started seeing the kind of benefits of nature being um, allowed to kind of flourish and do its own thing that's the kind of encouraging thing about I think the insect crisis is that we need to do a lot of things but a lot of it is just about being a bit lazier in many respects about doing less some things we just need to do less of we need to to kind of um, we need to kind of be less fussy have less kind of manicured lawn and that kind of thing we um we just need to ease off and once we ease off a bit we can we can give them a chance so i've been talking to oliver millman we've been talking about his book the insect crisis which is out now in paperback from atlantic oliver thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it thank you so much this episode of little atoms was produced presented and edited by me neil denny Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.